0: Okay, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you, and a little terrifying, but mostly good. Um, I've really enjoyed worshiping with you this morning. The singing was great. Thank you for, for doing that. I'm not sure I'll enjoy this part as much, but um, here we go. My wife, Wendy, and Judah and I would like to say a big hello from your brothers and sisters at Emmanuel Church in Bothell. Um That's where we attend church. Normally when I stand in front of people, I have a guitar with me all the time. It's really weird not to have a guitar. In fact, I kind of want to grab that one and just hold it, but I think that would be awkward, so I'm not going to do that. Um, Before I get going, I feel like I need to give you the biggest disclaimer in the world ever. I am not a preacher. I'm a chiropractor. Um, The only thing I can say by way of credentials is that I I took a preaching class and I see some familiar faces here, some familiar friendly faces, so I feel like the crowd is seated a little bit, which is nice. Um, but I want to thank Dean and, and Michael for uh, putting that class on. That was really incredible and I consider it a great honor and a privilege to have learned how to better dig into the Word of God um, on those Saturday mornings earlier in this this spring. It was a lot of fun too. I remember One Saturday morning, Dean was asking the group if we had any working titles for our sermon. And I had come across the idea of your body being the instrument of your soul, which I kind of thought was catchy and connected with me. So I thought, I said, what about instrument of the soul? And Dean looked at me funny and he said, excrement of the soul? (laughs) And I don't know if he heard me wrong or if he was just being funny, but I've been chuckling about that ever since. (laughs) Every time I I sit down and start working on this sermon, I think here I am polishing the excrement of my soul. Um, (laughs) So I I don't have my hopes set too high. This is my first sermon ever, but I do hope that it's not the excrement of my soul. Um, So with that in mind, maybe we should go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray, seriously. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gathering of saints here today. Thank you for your infinite mercy to us. As we ponder that this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would stir our hearts with affection for you that is rooted in a true understanding of what you have for us in your word today. we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In about A.D. 57, a wealthy deaconess named Phoebe set out on a long journey across the Adriatic Sea. She carried with her a letter written on papyrus sheets wrapped in a waterproof skin of leather and probably rolled into a scroll. At that time in history, official mail in the Roman Empire was delivered by runners and it was Phoebe's task to deliver this letter to a new group of Christians in modern day Italy. I'm sure she would have held the scroll a little tighter to her chest if she would have realized that she carried with her a letter that would change the world. Phoebe held in her hands words that would bring tears of repentance to the eyes of St. Augustine as he heard them read aloud in a, being read aloud in a nearby room. Speaking of this letter, Martin Luther would say, This message became to me a gateway into heaven. And it was listening to words Luther wrote about this letter that caused John Wesley to trust in Christ alone for his salvation and travel over a quarter million miles on the back of a horse so that he could deliver 40,000 sermons, over 40,000 sermons, and bring evangelical revival to England. This letter that Phoebe carried with her across the ocean brought countless souls to Christ, and it is a letter that we still carry with us today. I'm sure you've guessed I'm referring to the words written by the Apostle Paul to the Romans. At the heart of this incredible book, we find the hinge verse of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which in a way summarizes and ties together uh, the whole book. In fact, if you've ever wondered what the meaning of life is, you'd, be, uh, you'd do well to remember Romans chapter 12, verse 1, because as it turns out, this little verse holds the answer to what life is all about. It's the crux of everything. Paul tells us what life is about in three parts. First of all, Paul wants us to understand that the good news about Jesus can be summarized in the word mercy. Secondly, that our response to that mercy should be to worship God. And finally, Paul tells us how to worship, by defining worship as acts of bodily service that show God's mercy to the world. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The first thing I notice about this text is the warm, affectionate tone that Paul takes. He appeals to the Romans as his brothers. This is convicting for me as I talk to people about Jesus, because much of the time, I'm just trying to win an argument instead of appealing to a brother, a brother in Adam at least, and a potential brother in Christ. Paul appeals; he doesn't command and it's really effective. The word therefore refers to the good news about Jesus that Paul has very clearly and winsomely been laying out in the first 11 chapters of Romans. This presentation of the gospel is known as the Romans' road to salvation, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It has become a model for Christian evangelism ever since Paul wrote it. The Romans' road starts with Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord in Romans 6.23. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed his love for us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And finally, Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. These are some of the most well-known verses in the Bible because they are such a clear and winsome presentation of the good news about Jesus. And here in Romans 12.1, Paul sums up that good news by calling it the mercies of God. I love this summary of the gospel. Paul co- uh, covered a variety of topics relating to the gospel, but if we're really going to understand what he's saying, we have to be struck by the fact that this is ultimately a story about God's incredible mercy and our need for that mercy. That should be the take-home of the gospel. You might have seen the video clip of the pastor who's tired of answering the favorite question of doubters who ask, how can a good, all-powerful God allow bad things to happen? I'm sure you've heard that before. This pastor says, the question we ought to be asking is, how can a good and all-powerful God not kill us in our sleep last night, knowing what we did and said and thought the day before? If you can ask that question, you're beginning to grasp what Paul is talking about when he sums up the, the gospel as being all about God's mercy to us wretched sinners. A right understanding of the gospel begins with a firm two-handed grasp on mercy. If we miss this point, we can go wrong in lots of ways. We'll get offended that Paul thinks we're sinners when we think we're not. If we miss God's mercy, we might think we can be responsible for even a tiny speck of our salvation, and that will give us the opportunity and the right to look down on others who aren't doing quite as well as we are. This is what was happening in, in the church at Rome at the time. The Roman church's Gentile majority was looking down on their... Christian Jewish brothers because the Jews forsook Christ. But the gospel ought to rob us of our ability to look down on our fellow human beings because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all forsook Christ. It amazes me how bent we humans are on finding even the smallest difference between ourselves and those around us. Why do we do that? We do it so that we can judge and look down on people because that makes us feel superior in some way. Sometimes the difference is so small that we quickly forget what it was in the first place, and all we can remember is that we just don't like that person for some reason, and that's good enough. Do you remember the Rwandan genocide of 1994, where Hutus, using mostly machetes and clubs, rose up and massacred their Tutsi neighbors, and often family members, killing an average of 8,000 people a day for 100 days straight? That's 800,000 people. Do you know the difference between a Hutu and a Tutsi? Tutsis were a little taller, they had lighter skin, and they had a thinner nose than the Hutus. Tutsis were more likely to be animal herders than farmers and tended to be more affluent and politically powerful. So the animosity that drove the Rwandan genocide in the spring and summer of 1994 stemmed from differences in physical appearance, vocation, wealth, and power. Does it terrify anyone else that when we judge our neighbors based on physical appearance, vocation, money, and power, or lack thereof, we're guilty of the same crime the Hutus were when they killed 800,000 Tutsis with machetes? I have a vivid image of what a machete can do. Um, when I was 13, my family moved to Belize to be missionaries for a year. I told my son that I'd work in a Belize story because he asks me about Belize all the time. So this is for you, Judah. You can stop coloring and pay attention for a second. Um, one time I heard a herd of wild boar uh, wandered through a small village of, of Mexican workers who quickly grabbed their machetes and killed as many pigs as they could. Hearing the rumors of free meat, my dad threw us in the truck and we arrived shortly after this had happened. As I walked through the carnage of dozens of pigs hacked to death by machetes, I had to look away. I have kind of a light stomach. I, I couldn't handle looking at 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 a pig being killed by a machete. So I had to leave actually and sit down put my head between my knees so I didn't faint. If I couldn't even look at a pig being killed by a machete, I I can't imagine what what 800,000 human beings being killed that way would look like. It blew it blows my mind. And to think that I judge people for the same things that the Hutus judge the Tutsis for all the time. Paul says you can't do that. We can't look down on each other because we all, both Jew and Gentile, Hutu and Tutsi, white and black, male and female, Republican and Democrat, fill in the blank, we all are in the same sinking boat together. Actually, the boat has sunk because we chopped a hole in it, and now we're thrashing around in the middle of the Arctic Ocean in a winter storm with our heavy boots and parkas on, trying to swim thousands of miles to shore. We can't do it. If that's how hopeless we saw ourselves we would never dream of looking over at our neighbor between the white caps and judging them on their swimming technique. Because we would know that a more effective swimming stroke couldn't save us. We don't need to believe in ourselves a little more so we can dig deep and try harder. We don't need an energy bar. We need a medevac chopper to descend from the sky and rescue us. That's the gospel. And it gets better. The Greek word that Paul uses for mercies in Romans 12, 1, has its roots in the antithesis or the complete opposite of wrath. The gospel does more than just help us avoid our due punishment. It brings us an eternal inheritance as the sons and daughters of God. This is more than just a Superman-style rescue. This is, is an adoption, and our adoptive parents aren't broke. God's been, we've been adopted by the one true God, the maker of all things, God doesn't rescue us from the Arctic Ocean only to leave us wet and sputtering on the nearest frozen beach. He takes us from the bad end of the spectrum, where things couldn't get any worse, past the middle, and he goes way past the other end where we can't even imagine how good things are going to be. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We are now children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 16. Sometimes we think that the Christian life is about turning away from bad things. Like our goal is merely to get through life without sinning. But let's not forget what we're turning to. Look to Jesus, open your eyes to the kingdom that he is giving you. We've seen that Paul wants us to understand the magnitude of God's mercy to us. Now we're going to see what Paul wants us to do about it. Paul wants us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Paul is appealing to his brothers, the Romans, and he appeals to us today by the mercies of God because he wants us to worship God. So what is worship? The dictionary definition of worship is a reverent love, an ardent devotion, and expression of love. And that's a good definition. But I like the definition of the Greek word for worship even better. The most commonly used Greek word that we translate into the English word worship in the Bible is proskeneo, which literally means to kiss the hands towards one in a token of reverence. In other words, worship is blowing kisses. We worship whatever our heart blows kisses towards. When our heart swells with emotion to the point that we want to demonstrate it in some way, and the only way we can think of at the time is kissing our hands and throwing them at the thing that we love. That's worship. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, we're showing that we love and value and care for something or someone. So taking this definition of wor- worship, we have to conclude that worship is something everybody does. It's like breathing. It's what humans do. We don't have a choice. An atheist can't say that they don't worship because an atheist, an atheist demonstrates, um, there are, an atheist worships, rather, every time they demonstrate their care for something. This is the great delusion of secular government and secular schools. They don't understand that humans are born worshipers, that worship is something that everybody does, and it's something that everybody is. It's not just who we, who, what, it's not just what we do, it's who we are. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is hard for some people because it means that life isn't about glorifying themselves. I know someone who walked away from the Christian faith largely because of this issue. The idea that God would create mankind simply to worship him seemed ludicrous. If God needed a whole world full of people just to tell him how great he was all the time, then that must mean that God was either really arrogant or that he was insecure. Well, as you know, God is not arrogant or insecure because of this. God knows that when a human being worships something, that human being becomes more like what they are worshiping. God, being a kind and benevolent God, wants you to worship him because he wants you to be more godlike. It's for you. It's not for him. He doesn't need it. We need it. My friend had it backwards. Jesus wants you to follow him, not because he wants to take anything from you. He wants you to follow him because he wants to give to you. He wants to give you abundant life. He wants to give you the world. God wants to save you from becoming like the deaf and dumb idol that would sit on the throne of your heart, stealing your worship until it kills you. So you are what you worship, just like you are what you eat. I'm sure you've heard that saying before, right? You are what you eat. Did you know that's actually literally true? Our bodies take the carbon from the food we eat and rework it into the proteins and lipids and nucleic acids and glycans that make up the organic matter of our body. That means with barbecue season in full swing, unless you're a vegan, uh, you're dead meat. By the way, how do you tell if someone's a vegan? You don't. They tell you. (laughs) And if they don't tell you, you could ask them where they get their carbon from, and then they would have to say corn or something else, but not, not dead meat. If we are what we worship, the question is, what are we worshiping? Is it the one true God, or is it an idol? To ask that question a different way, what are we becoming? Are we becoming more like the living God, or are we becoming more deaf and more dumb and more dead like our idol? When I put it that way, choosing God over an idol seems like an easy thing to do, but we should never underestimate how skilled and how crafty we are at manufacturing idols. We make idols out of pretty much anything without even knowing it. We can literally do it in our sleep. I often wish our idols could be unmasked and seen for the deadly demons they truly are, but they tend to look more like investment portfolios and shiny motorcycles. I just pulled that one out of the air. That has nothing to do with me. Uh, achievements are physical health sometimes, houses, reputations, even Relationships. Anything that makes us say to God, you can have it all, but don't take this. I need it. Martin Luther says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. He could have said, whatever your heart blows kisses towards, that is really your God. But he didn't say that that way for some reason. Maybe because it wasn't manly enough, and he seems like a manly guy. Now that Paul has helped us understand the depths of God's mercy to us and that we should respond in worship, He's going to tell us how to worship. In Romans 12, verse 1, Paul is helping the Roman church broaden their understanding of worship. Romans is an epistle, which means a letter written by an apostle, but it differs from a regular letter in that its intended audience is public, not private. As the letter to the Romans circulated around the early church, readers and listeners would have thought of worship as being the ceremonial rituals that happened inside the temple in Jerusalem. Just like many people today think that worship is singing praise songs inside of a church. But Jesus radically changed the concept of worship when he died on the cross and the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Worship is no longer tied to a particular place or an outward ceremonial ritual like it used to be in the Old Testament. Jesus now says to the Samaritan woman at the well that the time has come when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, not at the temple in Jerusalem. This John 4:23 and 24. Listen to what John Piper says about worshiping in spirit and in truth. Worship must be vital and real in the heart, and worship must rest on a true perception of God. There must be spirit and there must be truth. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full or half full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep, sound doctrine. Strong affections for God, rooted in truth, are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. So worship is not just about singing songs or about what happens inside the walls of a church building, although as Hebrews tells us, we should not neglect to meet together in corporate worship like we are today. Worship is living a life in a way that brings glory to God. Anything you do, if done for God's glory and with a thankful heart, can be an act of worship. So you can ride your shiny motorcycle and worship at the same time. In fact, I think those two go close together, hand in hand. Maybe because you're so close to death the whole time. (laughs) I just crashed my motorcycle three weeks ago for the first time in my life, but I'm okay. Um, You can worship when you pay your mortgage, even though mortgage means death pledge and is kind of the bane of a lot of people's Life. But if you're thankful to God and you say, God, thank you that I can provide for my family the way you provided for me, that's an act of worship. In our text, Paul defines spiritual worship in a surprising way. He says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. God wants your body not because you won the CrossFit Games and you're a perfect specimen. Your body does not need to be a spotless lamb that can atone for sin. That's not the kind of sacrifice we're talking about. God wants your body because it's how he chooses to get things done in the world. He needs your hands to help serve a hot meal. He needs your feet to go take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He needs your fingers to write, your voice to speak truth and encourage and to pray and to sing. The Hebrew and Greek languages each have over ten words that we translate into the word worship, and almost all of them depict some kind of bodily action, like bowing down, service, ritual service, labor, making, seeking, ministering, supplicating. Worship is more than just a state of mind. There's a practical physicality to, physicality to worship because God has chosen your body to spread his mercy to this poor fallen world. In the rest of chapter 12, Paul goes on to give a list of things Christians should do, but before he gives that list, he wants us to understand that these things ought to be done as humble acts of worship as we demonstrate to the world, the great mercy God has shown us. That is why we serve, teach, exhort, give, lead, love, hope, pray, show hospitality, bless, empathize, live in harmony with each other, refuse to retaliate in vengeance, and feed the hungry. That's in the rest of chapter 12 alone. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice when we let our every act demonstrate that God is our treasure, When we give someone a cup of water in Jesus' name, that is mercy, and that is worship. If we give someone a cup of water and we leave Jesus out of it, all we have is a mere social program. And as John Piper says, it's not mercy to make someone more comfortable on the way to hell. Don't run around the deck of the Titanic with a box of Band-Aids when you should be helping people into lifeboats. Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley, whom I mentioned earlier, showed his grasp of mercy of God's mercy when he wrote the words to the great hymn, And Can It Be? He writes, "'Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, O oh my God, it found out me. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne." and claim the crown through Christ my own. Now, instead of drowning in a dark frozen ocean, we're swimming in a sea of mercy. Instead of following our idols down to death, we follow Christ to life. And this is my point. Allow God's mercy to stir your heart in such a way that you can't help but blow kisses back at him. And from that place, use the body God has given you to spread his mercy throughout the world. Like St. Augustine, Luther, Wesley, and countless other saints before you, listen to God's words to you through the Apostle Paul and respond to God's mercy through your bodily service to others and watch God change you and watch God change the world because of your worship.